So I will just read through the passage again from verse 7, uh, and then we'll pray and then we'll study. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that he would not enter his rest? but to those who were disobedient, so that we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this passage of scripture. May we be encouraged. May we be challenged. May we be rebuked where necessary. May your word speak to our hearts this day. And as we hear your word today, may we not harden our hearts. As we hear your word, may we humble ourselves. And may we not be guilty of the very crime, the very sin that we study again this day. Amen. Amen. Okay. Recap for those of you who weren't around last week, we've got some catching up to do. In chapter 3, where we are, um, we have started having dealt with the superiority of Christ to the angels somewhat earlier in the first two chapters. The issue has now become the superiority of Christ over Moses. Moses was venerated in Judaism. He was this amazing guy. He was lifted up above everybody else, and he was the, uh, the important one. You remember in the Gospel accounts, uh, Jesus, you know, was... Um, when we're dealing with the Pharisees, they would say, look, we don't know who you follow, but we're disciples of Moses. That was the kind of big deal. If you're following God, you're a disciple of Moses. So he was held high within Judaism. But the, the readers of this, or the hearers of this sermon, these Jewish people who were Jewish by race, by ethnicity, by, by birth, and yet believers in Christ by faith, that these people were tempted because of the persecution surrounding them to return to their Jewish roots, to return, probably bad phrase, they hadn't left their Jewish roots, but to return to worshipping in the synagogues, to the Jewish form of worship, because they were being rejected for their belief and their faith in Christ. 
And so they would return to this veneration of Moses and they're being reminded of how stupid that is because Moses was a, one who was created by Christ. Moses was one who was part of the house and not the builder of the house. And yes, Moses was a great man. Yes, he was faithful in all of God's house, a servant. But he was one who came to testify to the one who was to come later, who was greater. Christ himself, also faithful, and how much more so. And so, with Moses in mind, we came in verse 7 to a quotation from Psalm 95. And it took us a little bit into the realm of inception, a dream within a dream, a text within a text. We're kind of joining all these dots together as we go back. He'd already pointed us to Numbers 12 and the rebellion against Moses by uh, Miriam and Aaron. And, and then when we come to the quotation from Psalm 95... That, and we did this in detail last week, that there in Psalm 95, there was a reference to three earlier events, to the, um, the waters of Meribah, Meribah and Massa, where there had been no water, and the first time Moses had struck the rock and water poured out, and the people had learned to trust God and not to grumble, and they went back to Meribah, and what happened when they went back? There was no water again. And Moses, who had been so faithful, he was so frustrated with the unfaithfulness of Israel that rather than doing what he'd been told to do, which was to speak to the rock, he struck it again. The rock representing Christ was only struck once. Christ was struck on the cross when he comes again there'll be no striking. He will conquer by the words of his mouth. And so Moses messed up the analogy. He'd been so faithful. He was under such provocation, such frustration. You can completely understand Moses' situation, but he disobeyed. And so he didn't get to see the promised land. He and the rest of Israel, because the third event that's referred to here in Psalm 95, as we saw in detail last time, was the rebellion of Kadesh Barnea, where the people of Israel are standing on the very brink of the promised land. And they send spies out into the land, and the spies come back and say everything that God said was true. Land flowing with milk and honey, produce, just everything that you need to live. It's just a wonderful land. It's fantastic. But, ten of them says, they're giants. And by the way, we're not going to do it tonight. We've done it on Tuesday night studies, but they literally were giants. They are military mighty. They will destroy us. It's a wonderful land, but we aren't going to be able to take it. And then the other two spies, Caleb and Joshua, they said, God promised us the land. So we go in and we get the land. That's how it works. He promised us the land. He's brought us to the land. All we do is go in and get the land. And the people said no. The people listened to the ten and not the twelve. They said, you brought us out of Egypt just to destroy us and just to kill us. And the lesson they were supposed to have learned in the wilderness 
when they grumbled about water, they grumbled about food, and God kept providing, they still didn't trust God. If you still don't trust God, Tuesday night, 7 p.m., Psalm 37. That's what we're talking about. They didn't trust God. And so that entire generation of Israel are told, you will not see the promised land. And so they, after literally a year in the wilderness, their time is extended to 40 years. They will live out their days wandering around in rebellion and frustration and never see the promised land. Now, as we dealt with that last time, we've kind of covered the, uh, the, the quotation from Psalm 95. Notice that in, uh, in Hebrews 3, as we see the quotation, you notice there that the reference that we saw in Psalm 95 to Massa and Meribah is not there. The author of Hebrews, when he quotes from the Old Testament, is constantly quoting from the Septuagint, the Greek translation. And occasionally he makes little adjustments here and there, and he's done both here. He's quoted from the Septuagint and made a few little adjustments, because what he is doing while using this text is he is pointing specifically, not to num uh, Exodus 17 and not to uh, Numbers 20. He's not pointing to uh, Massa and Meribah and the water. What he's pointing to specifically is Kadesh Barnea. He's pointing specifically to that day of rebellion where God said, go take the land. They said, we're not taking the land. And they lost their opportunity to ever go into the land. And we can see that as the text goes on because he's going to make reference to 40 years multiple times. And so... Let's pick up in verse 11 where the quotation ends of Psalm 95. And he says, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now again, I need to remind you at this point, we mentioned it last time, but this is at the end of our catching up. But let me remind you of this. When the Israelites were freed from slavery in Egypt and they passed out of Egypt through the parting of the Red Sea, that is representative and symbolic multiple places in Scripture going forwards of freedom from sin. When we become free from our sin by the blood of Christ through faith in Him, that is the equivalent they were slaves to the Egyptians, and we were slaves to our sin. And Christ, by his blood, through the ultimate Passover, mirrors that first Passover, and we become free from our slavery, the slavery to sin. So when they go into the wilderness, they represent a people who are saved. I'm not saying that they were all saved, clearly not. But what they represent is a saved nation. They represent a people in a place of salvation. And yet they're not in the promised land. So what is the, par the passing from the wilderness to the through the Jordan to the promised land? What does that represent? That represents us trusting God. 
That represents us moving from living in the flesh to walking in the spirit. That represents us being a faithful people. And so when he's talking to these Christians, these saved people, he's warning them not that they're going to end up in slavery of sin. You don't get to go back to Egypt. One of the biggest misunderstandings of the book of Hebrews is that there are Christians who think that Hebrews teaches you can lose your salvation. It does not. You don't get to go back to Egypt to slavery again. He's not talking about that. The imagery is very clear. He's talking about them not having rest. He's talking about them living a life that is the equivalent of walking around in circles in the wilderness their entire lives. He's talking about them never seeing the promised land. So as we as Christians come to this text as Christians to look at it, as they're told today, don't let this be you, we need to understand today, don't let this be us. The warning for them and the warning for us is the same, which is not that we can lose our salvation. The warning is we don't want to spend our lives wandering around in a wilderness. We don't want to spend our lives never trusting God. We don't want to spend our lives constantly being disciplined. We don't want to spend our lives rebelling against him. We don't want to spend our lives missing out on a land flowing with milk and honey. We don't want to do that. So that's where we're going today, and that's what we'll be seeing. The, the, the warning is that they shall not enter my rest. We want to be a people who live a life of rest. Not that we're without trials or suffering or persecution, but that we trust in God. As we saw from that hymn this morning, it's not that we're ever going to be free from sorrow. It's that we're the kind of person who when we pass on a ship, past a spot where our daughters died, that we write hymns rather than grumble and curse God. That's what it means to be in that place of rest. Therefore, we move on. Take care, brothers, lest there be any... in in any of you, an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. This is where this idea of losing salvation comes from, the phrase fall away. Yes, fall away is the same word that we get our word apostasy from. And yes, we understand that people will sometimes profess faith and fall away from that profession. No, I don't believe such people were ever saved. But he's not talking about that here. He is clearly, as we've seen in the context, talking about the danger of being a wilderness people, the danger of rebellion. And practically that means not living as a Christian should, falling away. You see, the problem is, is that we think of some sins as being big sins. We think of, there are certain sins, and it depends, I think, almost more on your cultural background what the big sins are. I mean, there are churches where if you commit certain sins, you are just the most wicked person on the planet. There's some churches where you commit certain deeds that aren't even sins biblically, and you're the most wicked person on the planet. 
But you want to be proud? You want to be nasty to people? You want to cast aside the widows and the fatherless and the people in need? Oh, you're fine. You can be in leadership for a week, eh? You know, we pick and choose our sins. And I think verse 12 can be a bit of a shocker to us. Because verse 12 says, look, be careful, guys. He's talking to a church. He's talking to a group of people, a group of Christians. So he's saying to us as a group, be careful, because there might be people among you who have evil, unbelieving hearts that will cause them to go away from God and his ways. A couple of things to note there. Firstly, a tendency to leave God is, comes from an evil and unbelieving heart. Look, these guys weren't unbelievers. But when you choose to walk away from Christ and to go and worship with those who venerate Moses more than Christ because you're more bothered about the persecution that comes to you than you are about being faithful to Christ who is the faithful one who has been faithful to you that's unbelief of some sort at the very least and that makes it evil we've got to get our heads around this you know, we think that, you know, if a person commits adultery, that's evil. It is. We think that if a person kills another person, that's evil. It is. But when God says, I am like this, and you say, I'm not sure about that, that's evil too. It's an evil, unbelieving heart that does that. And it causes you to walk away from God, step by step by step. When somebody backslides, when somebody falls into sin, it's not something that happens. In fact, I hate the phrase, fall into sin. It's like you're walking down a road one day, and, and you, you're looking ahead, and there's a manhole cover that's been removed, and you just, oh, fall into a hole. You're, one minute you're on solid ground, and boom, the next minute you're, you're suddenly fallen, and it just came out of nowhere. People don't fall into sin that way. It's a downward slope that is typically very gradual, that is punctuated by significant events that are somewhat steeper. And it always comes from an evil and unbelieving heart. You know, there are sins that we commit that are sins that are periphery to the gospel. Periphery. Uh, meaning that, you know, we're told not to do them, they're sins, we shouldn't do them, but they're not directly impacted upon the gospel. But there are, there are sins that are gospel-centric sins. And unbelief is one of them. Why do I call it gospel-centric? Because the only way we get saved in the first place is through believing. And then if we, having believed, we choose a life of constant unbelief, well, I kind of, I believe he died on the cross for my sins and all, that, and all of that, but it's really hard for me to believe that God's not against me when all of this stuff goes on. It's really hard for me to believe that he's good. It's really hard for me to believe that he's sovereign. These are gospel-centric issues because the God whom we accepted that brought us salvation, we're now rejecting. 
the things that he said that were true, that we believed in, that we might be saved, that we're rejecting his truth now. Unbelief is a serious gospel-centric sin. Repentance is a gospel-centric sin. These guys should be repenting of this temptation to stray as they start to walk this path of departure. They need to repent. Why? Because repentance brought us to God. Forgiveness, gospel-centric. These are serious things, and it's evil and unbelieving hearts that walk away from God. The other thing to note about verse 12 becomes much clearer in verse 13 when he says, But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You're going to see in these three verses a repetition three times of a key issue that I keep trying to emphasize that the modern evangelical church is useless at. And that is the importance of congregation. Corporate worship. I see this, this, this error constantly. The idea that you can be a Christian hermit. You know, you get your sermons online. That you, you, you know, it's just your belief in your heart and, you know, church is full of hypocrites and you don't want to be there and you've been hurt by this church and you've been hurt by that church and you're just done with church and blah, blah, blah. But you know that you love God in your heart. Absolute rubbish. If you love God in your heart, read the book of Ephesians and just see how much rubbish it is. Because Paul emphasizes so strongly that the only way we come to Christian maturity is corporately. If you are a Christian that rejects corporate fellowship, corporate maturity, corporate you know, church, then you are an immature Christian by definition. By definition. Because the way that we mature is by exercising our gifts corporately. I think I've got the gift of teaching. I'm guessing if you come here, you might agree with that. Okay? What is the point in me preaching a sermon every day in an empty room? Well, I, mean, I might benefit from it, I suppose. But that's not what the gift's for. The gift is not for me. The gift is for you. And every single person who is saved has gifts, or at least a gift, because we have the same Holy Spirit who unites us. And he has gifted us all. And just like my gift isn't for me, your gift isn't for you. And the way you use your gift is by coming to church and exercising your gift. It's by exercising your gift for the blessing and the benefit of other people here. If you don't ever interact with other Christians, you don't get to exercise your gift. And it, Paul talks in that context about Christians exercising their gifts to the benefit of one another that we might all mature together. Technically, my gift's slightly different because my gift is a gift that equips the saints. And what I'm doing now in preaching is equipping you so that you are better equipped to do your work of ministry. And then what happens is as we minister to one another, the church becomes more Christ-like 
which is the definition of maturity. You can't do it alone, it's not possible by definition. So here, three times in three verses, we're reminded, take care, brothers, as always, brothers and sisters, the Greek word encompasses male and female, take care, brothers and sisters, as is any of you an unbelieving heart. So in other words, you take care that there isn't somebody who's going on this journey in your midst. He doesn't just take care, lest there be this problem in you as an individual. He says you are responsible that there aren't any of you who are on this journey of backsliding. There aren't any of you that have evil, unbelieving hearts. That isn't to say that it's your job to walk around with a big stick and say, ah, unbeliever, boom! I don't think that it's necessarily a judgmental thing. It's more of this coming alongside. You see, this is many of you, this is your gift. Some of you need to be equipped a bit more before you know what your gift is, and that's your starting point. But for many of you, this is your gift. You're the sort of person when someone says, you know, I'm struggling to believe right now. I'm struggling to get my eyes off these horrible things I'm experiencing and get my eyes on God. And some of you have lived that, and you've been through that, and you've been through horrible things in your life. So that, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3 and following, that you in your suffering might come along others as they suffer to point them to Christ. Some of you have gone through horrible things in your life for the very purpose that God might use you to comfort others in their suffering. And so you come alongside and you say, are you struggling to believe? I don't know what that's like. I remember that. Let me help you. You don't come along and say, evil, unbelieving heart, get out from our midst. <laughs> you come alongside knowing that could be you again next week, next month, next year. You come alongside knowing how hard it was for you to trust. You come alongside in love. And then in verse 13, exhort one another every day. Ah, oh, you know why I want this church to grow more than any other reason? Every day. That's why. Bible study on a Monday, Bible study on a Tuesday, Bible study on a Wednesday, prayer meetings all the time. Every day. Every day. Not that you have to be here every day. I won't be doing, teaching them every day, I can promise you. I don't think I'd be able to do that but simply so there's more opportunities for us to meet together. And notice that this is a community. Oh, if only we had a way of being in contact with each other when we're not at church. Oh, it, it just would be great, wouldn't it? I mean, who could think of something that we could, you know, if only we had telephones and social media and feet and cars. There's this opportunity to keep ministering outside of church. We are a family, we are a body, not just here in this building on a Sunday, but all the time. We're family. And we can minister, and we can exhort, and we can encourage. And I'm equipping you so that you can do that. Too often, too often in churches people say, that's the pastor's job. Absolute nonsense. That's the opposite of what Paul says. He says the pastor's job is to teach the church, to equip them to do the work of ministry. 
So let's get out and let's be family and let's minister to one another. Let's love on one another. Let's bless one another. Let's encourage one another. And let's exhort one another as long as it is called today. That's the kind of... I don't know if he's making a joke here, but it seems to me to be a kind of equivalent of, you know, someone saying, when should we do this? And someone replying, well, every single day that the day of the week ends in a Y. It's kind of like saying that. It's kind of like, are we in today? Yeah, we're in today. Good day to be exhorting then. That's kind of what he's saying here in this text. He's saying, as long as it's called today, that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. In other words, there is this corporate sense that we've got to keep exhorting, encouraging one another, and saying to one another, come on, let's not be in unbelief, let's not leave Christ, let's not be distracted by the world, let's keep being faithful. How are you doing this week? How are you doing? I had a young lad who was a student of mine approach me a few months ago, and he says, you know, I'm really struggling with this sin, what do I do? And I said, well, you know, this, I think, you know, I think you know, this helped me with that particular sin and, and this, this helped me as well and, and I think that this might help you in your situation. And I gave him some advice. And then what I also did, I said, I want you to message me every week and tell me how you're doing. And every week he checks in with me and says, I've, 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 been, I've, I've stuck with it this week, I've been faithful this week, I haven't stumbled this week. And he keeps coming back to me and he keeps, it's a success story every week. Because there's that accountability. There's accountability there. And we've got to have accountability and exhort one another and keep doing it. Because you know what? Because sin is so deceitful. You're never going to have a guy in a red suit come knocking on your door saying, Hey, I'm Satan. Want to come and play? Want to come and do some sin? I've got some great sin for you today. Let me just show you my my package of sin I have ready for you. But if you really want to sin, I've got the gold package. We can really go to town. No, that's never going to happen. Sin is so appealing and enticing and so reasonable. It's so reasonable. You, You know what? I know I'm supposed to love... But you, you saw what they did, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's a, you know, I, I know my response wasn't perfect, but it's only reasonable. All sins are reasonable the first time you commit them. Every sin makes sense the first time you do it. And the second time you do it, it's so much easier than the first time. And when you've been doing it for years, it's really hard to stop doing it. It's deceitful. It's so deceitful. Sin is going to be there, not looking like sin, but looking like your best friend, looking like your saviour, looking like that bit of fruit that just makes your mouth water, and you're like, but did God really say I couldn't eat that? Did God really say not to do it? I mean, I know there's that verse that says, don't do this or do that. You know, what's the context, though? I mean, does it really mean what it seems to say it means? You know? I mean, surely it doesn't mean that. Well, that would just be silly. Did God really say? 
did God really say was the, the doorway, the gateway to the first sin. And it's the gateway to so many of our sins day after day. Again, Satan doesn't come and say, hey, let's go sinning. He opens the door and he says, did God really say? How do we protect ourselves? We protect each other. One of the greatest sins you can commit is when your fellow Christian starts questioning texts that are going to lead them into sin and you don't pull them up and say, hold on a second. You don't want to go down that road. I know that text is a hard one. I know it's not what you want to hear, but you need to do it. That's love. That's love right there. And so, we have a corporate responsibility to protect one another from the deceitfulness of sin. And, and before we move on from verse 13, what does the deceitfulness of sin do? He says that none of you be hardened. You see, that's our word going back to Psalm 95, going back to Numbers 14. We get hardened by sin. Meaning that it gets easier and easier and easier and harder and harder to come away from it. And we become less able to hear from God because our hearts are hard. That's what God said to the Israelites constantly in the wilderness. Your hearts are hard, your hearts are hard, your hearts are hard. And so they weren't able to worship God as they should. They weren't able to do what God wanted as they should. We don't want to have our hearts hardened. Verse 14 is the third of those three references to a corporate responsibility that I mentioned. For we have come to share in Christ. You see, that's a corporate word right there, isn't it? What, why are we doing this corporately? Because we share Christ. We're all Christians. He's, he's my saviour and your saviour. And we are trying together to mature into his likeness. And if you wander off into sin, then it affects the whole church. If I wander off into sin, it affects the whole church. We have a responsibility to one another because, because we share in Christ. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And again, this is a part where people say, see, see, if you don't stick to the end, then you're not Christ. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say if you don't stick to the end that you're not Christ. It says you know you are Christ because you have stuck to the end. There are Christian funerals I've been to where a person has walked faithfully with the Lord. There's one guy in England who was a member of the church I was pastoring at the time and he was a, he was a you know, faithful man. He followed the Lord. His children followed the Lord and he had grandchildren who were being raised in the ways of the Lord. He was a good guy. I mean, he, he really was. And there was another guy in the church who was slowly dying of cancer and we were getting ourselves ready for having to deal with that funeral and this other guy who was seemingly healthy had a sudden heart attack and he was dead in the space of a day, out of nowhere. First funeral I ever conducted. And it was a privilege. And as much as those things can be a, a pleasure. Because 
nobody there who was a believer had the slightest bit of doubt where that man was. Not the slightest. He was faithful to the end. He held his original confidence firm to the end and we all knew where he was going. Can you imagine having to conduct a funeral for somebody who has professed Christ and fallen away? Were they saved in the first place and have backslidden and their death, as Paul talks about in Corinthians, is simply an outworking of God's judgment against them. The very fact that they've died is evidence that they were saved because God disciplines those he loves. Or were they never saved in the first place and they just lived the life of an unbeliever after their false profession faded away emotionally, like the one who, with the, you know, the parable of the sower where the seeds are sown and they get choked by the cares of the world and there's never any fruit, never ever saved. I can't imagine doing that. Do you know how many Christians I know this day, people who have professed Christ, who I would not, and in some cases could not, do their funeral? It's horrific. So he's saying, he's not saying, if you don't hold firm to the end, you're not saved. He's not saying, God forbid he's not saying, if you walk away from Christ that you lose your salvation. That never comes into the book of Hebrews. The examples he's given are examples in the Old Testament of physical judgment and people being stuck in the wilderness and people missing out on God's blessings, but never people going back to slavery. But what he is saying is this, is he saying, you want every single one of you to be sure. You don't want to be put, you don't want anybody in your midst to be in a situation where there's no certainty. I look out upon you and there are many of you that I may conduct your funerals one day. And I don't ever want to be in a situation where the last church you went to was this church, so I'm asked to do it. But because of your life, because of your departure from following Jesus, that I have no assurance. How do I even do that? Do I publicly lie and pretend I have assurance? Do I embarrass you? and your family by admitting to a lack of assurance? Who'd want to be in that situation? There's a corporate responsibility that we have one to another to avoid these situations as much as we can. He's saying to them, you're a body. You've got, you watch each other's backs. Don't let anybody fall back to Judaism. Don't let anybody turn away from Christ. You've got you to do this together as a team. As indeed it is said. And this is fascinating to me. He repeats the first verse from Psalm 95. Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. He's repeated the word today three times now. Beginning of the long quote, and then in the middle there, if it, as long as it's called today, and then again today. 
This, guys, I mentioned this briefly last time, this is why he doesn't quote Numbers 14. He's using Psalm 95 to reference Numbers 14. Why not just quote Numbers 14? Because Psalm 95 does something that Numbers 14 doesn't. Psalm 95, as we saw last time when we read it, is the psalm that is read when people come to, to the temple to worship God. And they come to God to worship him. And they're told, hey, when you come today to the temple, when you come from their old covenant perspective, not for us, the presence of God's always in us, the Spirit indwells us, but for them, they come into the presence of God. They come and hear God's word. They come and sing praises to God. When they come to worship God, he said, if you hear God's voice, listen and obey. Don't harden your heart. Every time God's word is presented to you, every time you have an opportunity to hear God's word presented, you are in a situation where you have to choose. Do I let that text pierce my heart and change me, or do I harden my heart from its piercing? Every time we make that decision. And he is repeated today three times. Why? Because he's talking to them today. And this text is talking to us today. Do we harden our hearts and put ourselves at risk? Do we allow those around us to harden their hearts and put us all at risk? Or do we let God's word pierce our hearts? Do we want to be like those in Kadesh Barnea? Who rebel against the leadership of Moses and say, you're just going to lead us to death. We don't want to go there where those big, strong people are. Or are we going to be people like Joshua and Caleb that say, God said he's going to do it, let's go take it. Because I know that whenever we read the Bible, we're the heroes. Aren't we? Oh, I'd never have done that. Yeah, I'd be following. Yeah, we're Jesus followers. We do this. No, you're not. You're the sort of people who read comic books and think that you're the superhero. You're not. We're all the people on the street going, ah, everything's falling, what do we do? We're Superman. That's who we are. And the people at Kadesh Barnea, they had a choice. Do we trust in God or do we not? That's our choice. What are we going to do this day? Are we going to take a path that leads to hardness of heart and rebellion? Or are we going to trust in God? Verse uh, 16. For those who heard and yet rebelled, sorry, who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses and with whom he was provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? He's kind of putting things together here and he's saying this, look, who were those who heard and rebelled? The people who rebelled, they also heard. They also heard. Who were they? They were those who came out of Egypt. The people who saw the Red Sea part, the people who saw water come out of a rock, the people who woke to manna on the ground so they didn't starve, they're the people who said, they look big and scary, I'm not going over there. 
That is our nature. That's why Psalm 95. Come on, let's worship God. Let's give thanks to the rock of our salvation. Come on, let's worship him. Because we're sheep. We're the people of his pasture and we're the sheep in his hand. So we need to be careful that today, verse 7, we don't harden our hearts. Because even when we see the greatness of God and we rejoice and we celebrate and we're hallelujah, we love you God, you're so good. We come here today and we say, it's well with my soul. We come here today and we say, we give thanks to you God. God, you're so good and you're so awesome. And tomorrow we're going to be out there in the big wide world and the enemy's going to say, see, scary, isn't it? What are you going to do? See, scary. What do you do about this? How are you going to cope with that? What about this? If you do this, you're just going to get hurt more and more and more. You know it makes sense. Come on, here's the door open. I know God. But did God really say that? You could have all of this against you. And if you think that somehow you wouldn't have said, no, that's too scary because you'd seen the water parting, then you may well be kidding yourselves. That's what he's saying here. He's saying, look, who were these people? They were people who saw and they still didn't learn their lessons and they still didn't believe. And what happened as a result? Moses was left with them for 40 years. And by the way, he was provoked for 40 years. Why was he provoked for 40 years? Because they all had to be together in the wilderness because the people rejected. Did Moses reject? No, Moses wanted to go into the land. How come he didn't get to go into the land? There, at year one, how come he didn't get to go? Because the congregation said no. Do you see how corporate responsibility works? And he's stuck in the wilderness for 40 years of provocation and misery because people didn't have each other's backs. People didn't say, no, we've got to follow God. The majority was in the wrong. That's why churches have to have church discipline because if you don't, the minority very quickly can become the majority and then you don't have church at all. Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? I'm going to come back to verse 17. I want to finish there. Verse 18. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter in his rest, but those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Listen. They were unbelieving. They didn't end up getting their rest. They didn't get to go to the promised land. They ended up dead. Their bodies dead in a wilderness where they had to die without getting to the promised land. Why? Because of unbelief. Right? Okay, back to verse 17. 17, who was it who, and with whom was he, Moses, provoked for 40 years? Was it with, not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? I want you to notice two things in that verse. Firstly, 40 years. Secondly, bodies dead in the wilderness. He's preaching to a group of people who witnessed the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Some of them literally may have seen him risen from the dead. Some of them may literally have seen him die. Some of them may have seen him in their ministry, in his ministry earlier on. But they were all part of that generation where Christ walked on the earth. How many years 
is it from the death of Christ until the writing of this letter or at least until the falling of Jerusalem shortly after 40 years you still not ready to enter the promised land you still not want rest do you want your bodies to lie waste in the wilderness when the city of Jerusalem fell the Romans laid siege upon the city and they surrounded the city they surrounded the city and Jesus said when you see the city surrounded flee but they couldn't flee because the Romans were surrounding the city <laughs> kind of catch 22 huh but the Romans underestimated the resolve of Jerusalem they didn't have enough food didn't have enough resources to be able to maintain the siege for that long so they left and the Jews went yay Romans have given up we did it the Christians said let's get out of here and every Christian whose faith was in the words of Christ I'm not talking about whether they were saved or not I'm talking about whether they lived a life of belief whether they lived a life of faithfulness they left that city and they weren't there when the Romans came back with resources and resolve and finished the job off and those who had unbelief their bodies fell in that wilderness not a wilderness in a literal sense glorious city of Jerusalem but a city whose glory was taken away and they fell in the wilderness of sin of evil of unbelief of deceitfulness they chose Christ they chose to follow him they said we will follow you and then when that time came those who didn't follow died literally and those who did follow went off to live lives in the spirit and this guy is writing this letter to this congregation and is saying look these people had a decision to make and they made the wrong one they hardened their hearts and they fell and they died you guys are standing on the brink of a pivotal moment in history and today you need to decide are you going to follow Jesus or not and that word that has been repeated in this text so many times stands before us today 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 I am not a prophet I am not from a family of prophets I haven't got a clue what's going to happen to you tomorrow <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what I'm going to be doing tomorrow I don't know if things are going to go well or badly I don't know my son's got his first job interview in England tomorrow I don't know if he's going to get it or not I have no idea what's happening tomorrow none of us do could be our last day could be a significant day could be just another day but what we have to do is the same regardless we have to say this day I trust God and I place my life in his hands this day I follow Jesus 
I cast aside the distractions of this world. I reject the enemy's attempts to twist scripture. I stop hardening my heart that God's word won't pierce it. And I make a commitment to my brothers and sisters that they won't do it either. What are we going to do this day? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you so much. You're merciful, you're kind, you're long-suffering, you're patient. Father, I think of those words in Isaiah that we've studied, that were it not for your patience, were it not for your mercy, we would be like Sodom and Gomorrah. Were it not for your grace, would any of us be here? Would any of us profess the name of Christ? None of us. And yet, though we are Christians and saved, you're patient with our continued unfaithfulness, our continued unbelief. And we only stand still because of your faithful covenant-keeping love. Don't let us wander. Don't let us stray. Don't let us justify our sin. Don't let us harden our hearts and resist your word. Don't let us do that, Lord. Don't let us miss out on the promised land. Don't let us live a life though saved, wandering in circles around a wilderness that is our own flesh and our own inability and unwillingness to submit to your word. But may we live a victorious life, walking in your spirit, glorifying your name. Amen.